Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, uh, go to my Twitter, at Focused Compound, and hit that follow button. It's the best place to get everything that we put out there into the universe. Uh, if you're interested in learning about our money management services, uh, reach out to me, Andrew at FocusedCompound.com. We have a fund for qualified investors, and we have managed accounts for everybody else, um, assuming you meet a few thresholds. But uh, reach out to me, Andrew at FocusedCompounding.com. Um, so Jeff was just commenting. He likes to read, if you're watching on the screen, the what's happening on Twitter. I don't know if I like to read. I'm just well. You just always well, you're always like like completely like this stuff is just crazy because some sometimes it's funny. Like I always love when I don't like we'll be recording a podcast and I'm focusing on the podcast and I don't see what's going on, yeah. or what's happening, and then I'll be editing it. Like there was <laughs> the one I remember was Elon Musk yeah. calls Elizabeth Warren Senator Karen, and I didn't like realize that during the podcast when yeah. I was real when I was we're, editing we're looking it. At it. I'm seeing this, and it's just all suddenly about Elon Musk and uh, you know Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, and yeah. I'm like what happened? Oh, but this right here it says happened. Queen Elizabeth. The second test positive for COVID-19. And then the next one says, um, the queen died is and the trend headline. And underneath it, it says there's been no confirmation the queen has died. Yeah. So I don't know how Twitter chooses to do those things because unless you read the caption of the uh, stuff underneath, you would think yeah. that they're confirming that she has died. Yeah. So. And I was just telling Jeff, I feel like when I read the Wall Street Journal in the morning, mm -hmm. I always think to myself, if I want to read the paper, maybe I should read it like on a Saturday mm -hmm. because I just feel like some information, I mean, to your point, I mean, either I, I hear about it through Twitter or whatever and kind of get the fact as opposed to, you know, certain things, but there's just, it's so much like, oh, markets crash today because of this, markets rally on strength. It's like, how much of this is actual substance? Right, it's all noise, and I always think mm -hmm. to myself, I'm like, I don't even know if this is even worth reading, unless I want to read just like once a week or something like that. To yeah, get like a, a problem is they have to get yeah. out to you fast. You know, that's why papers are better than online things. I think the online things have kind of hurt the papers, the quality of them sometimes because they're basically created to be updated throughout mm -hmm. the day and stuff online. I yeah. feel badly for people having to write them. You know. I've been using this website, which I like, called The Daily Shot. Okay. And there's really no commentary. It's just all data. And uh, it's, you know, some macro stuff and stuff. Well, mainly macro stuff. But mm -hmm. I just find it interesting because there's not a lot of, uh, you know, political views or this or that. It's just like data of what's going on. Really, I follow it just for like interest rates and the economy and stuff like that. Yeah. Just things I think is interesting. There's lots of useful information in news articles. Mm -hmm. um, but you have to get through all the other stuff and what they talk about there. Um, yeah, and, and they also the mix in yeah. Senator Karen with the interest rate <laughs> changes. So. Yeah. yeah. But this is just like the data of it, which I think is interesting. I think I pay like 15 bucks a month or something. No affiliation, just no. like the product. So, yeah, so people can check out that site. Yep, the Daily Shot. Okay. We're recording a Q&A. Okay. been a while since we've done a Q&A. We've done a lot of snap judgments recently, and I thought, hey, markets are kind of doing their thing right now. Why not see what is on everyone's mind? I think Trey kind of hacked this thread because he's just responding to like everyone's question. Oh, <laughs> well, that's good. It is We're good. not responding after them, so no, I know. step out there and, <laughs> and take care of it. That's right. That's called initiative. Yeah. Look at him. Look at this. Wow. Every question. Love it. Um, okay. This was a great question. Uh, what is an example of a previous incorrect investment thesis leading you to sell your position? What, when, how did you decide you were wrong? A specific example would be awesome. Thank you. Um, so let's see. There have been a few, I'm sure. Uh, really? No. I think that we've talked about fitness things before. Yeah. I was invested in Weight Watchers. And I think that I did not appreciate, um the tendency of people to switch um, to try out different things, whether those things were effective or not and how long that would take. Um, so that was one. Uh, 
so like in that case, you know, a lot of people were downloading apps and things, and I knew that they weren't sticking with it, that they wouldn't, you know, use the apps and they would quit after a little while. But that still, I think, caused a lot of difficulty with marketing the company for a little while. Um, so that, that's a very big one. I think I've come over time to realize that. And that's common in a few other ones where I think I made a mistake. Uh, many of those, though, were not investments I made, but things that I wrote up because I was did a, um, you know, single diligence uh, monthly thing where I wrote up a stock. And so that's way more than the number of stocks I buy. So where you get the marginal cases of stocks that I look at, think about, say, good enough to write a report on, but don't buy. There's a lot of that's where a lot of the mistakes are. You know, if I had to buy a stock every month, then I'd make a lot more mistakes. Mm -hmm. And so a lot are in that category. And a lot of them have to do with that same kind of um, lack of durability of a relationship with the customers, customer switching for different reasons and stuff like that. And so we've talked about that. A lot of it uh, is stuff we've mentioned before, which is fashion type things, um, fitness type things. They kind of like go to like I think we laughed about it one time because they kind of like go together like fashion, fitness, kind of like lifestyle yes. type things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would rather be invested in Twinkies than kale or something. Yeah, you know, because yeah. they'll be people. Keep We'd buying. also rather eat Twinkies <laughs> than people, kale. People keep buying Twinkies, but something will replace kale next uh, year. That it will be the dark green that you that everyone loves, and you know it'll, it'll keep churning over and stuff. So, um, yeah, uh, I think that. That's where they've been, where I've made mistakes before, and that's part of it. And then the other one is uh, with the people involved would be a very common one. But there's not many cases where I thought the people involved were particularly good and then changed my mind about it. Uh, usually I decided to invest despite the fact I wasn't terribly fond of the people and how they were choosing to run it, but that, that wouldn't be too big an issue. And then I decided it was too big an issue. So that's happened several times. Mm. Yeah. And that could be either they're too promotional or just like sort of general dysfunction incompetence things like that both of those sometimes you see a business and you think well that doesn't really matter it's a really good business a really good price it'll be okay and um so that's the other one where i've definitely changed on some stocks where you think your bar is much higher now no i don't know about that but i just mean that i came to recognize that um it, it was such a big issue that I chose to sell. Got it. Yeah. Trey asks, um, how do you think about the opportunity cost of holding 50 cent companies worth $1 that have a static value versus buying and holding compounders? If I assess on a 10 year minimum time scale, I don't see any point to buying non compounding businesses. Mm hmm. It's a good point. Well, if they don't compound at all, then yes. But on average, a lot of companies are going to turn out to have the non-compounders and the compounders, the ones you separate in those two buckets, are going to turn out to have very similar mm -hmm. actual growth over five years, uh, over 10 years. And someone makes a point, says it's a lot easier to clearly identify 50 cent dollars than it is compounders. Yes. Uh, yes, sort of. <laughs> yes, that's what I was just saying, kind of, um, that it'll turn out that for a large group of companies, maybe 80% of the universe. However, I will disagree a little bit in that it is sometimes easy to identify compounders. Unfortunately, they just aren't at reasonable prices. Mm -hmm. So identifying a compounder at an average price is often very difficult. But a lot of people, even value investors, wouldn't disagree with certain growth investors and stuff about which companies are going to be, uh, have a high degree of certainty that they will compound. Mm -hmm. Um that's not necessarily a point that there's a lot of disagreement on, but then it's often reflected in the price, you know? Yeah. And I guess to sort of expand on that, somebody asked, uh, so I want to pull it up if I could find it. Cause it's related to that. If I could find the tweet, there it is. How do you, uh, Harry asks, how do you think about the paradox of holding stocks at valuations slash levels that you would never pay for them? Uh, that's hard. A lot of value investors do it, especially ones who've gone very big so that it's not easy for them to sell out of something and buy into something new. Um, I don't know if I can do that. Um, if I don't have something better to do, then I guess that I would hold at valuations I want to buy at. But um, I'm probably less that way than like a Buffett or a Munger or someone like that, I would say. Yeah, because Munger said he wouldn't buy Costco today, but obviously he's still holding it. Yeah, I mean, there has to be some point at which you wouldn't buy, but you will hold, I guess. 
I mean, maybe there doesn't if you're a trader that that's not the issue there. But um, I would say that it's pretty wide for good companies. So it's pretty difficult to identify what price is too high for a really good company. But it's not impossible. And so um, if you could buy something at 10 times earnings, you might want to buy as much as you can of it. At 30, you might not be sure it's overpriced because it's such a good company. But you don't want to be buying a lot of it if you have other things you could own. Um, so I think that's true. Uh, but it has to be a very good company. Usually it's not a big deal unless it's a very good company, like mm-hmm. which means things like very durable, um, high returns on capital and stuff like that. If it's not so good at those things, then it's easier to figure out. Um, so uh, stocks we've mentioned on the podcast, for instance, over-the-counter markets, probably harder to figure out what's too high a price than Virtu Motors. Doesn't mean Virtu Motors isn't good business or won't perform better as a stock. It just means there are certain things in terms of like what your returns on capital can normally be in an industry that involves a lot of assets and stuff that you can go, okay, well, one level of price to book is acceptable. Double that level is not so acceptable. It's a lot harder to figure out with um, something like over-the-counter markets. Mm -hmm. If you use price to sales, it would figuring out what the exact right price to sales is, is hard because it depends on growth and growth adds so much value at a company that, um, doesn't, isn't really limited. It can have unlimited returns on capital. Then when it has almost no growth, it's not worth anything more than your average stock. And when it has a ton of growth, it's worth a lot more. So that growth is very valuable because the high returns on capital changes everything. What about, um, you know, a a pitch for focusing on the compounders from like a tax perspective Mm -hmm. and the after tax return, which is really the only return that matters. Yeah, so, that, I mean, that's good. Uh, I think it is good to focus on the compounders. But the compounders are a small, most of the returns in the stock market in an index or something comes from a pretty small, over an entire lifespan of the companies involved, comes from a pretty small number of companies. Um, most companies over a long enough period of time don't really give you returns that are a lot better than fixed income and things like that. So... Uh, they all seem to have that possibility, but most stocks really you can only buy at reasonable valuations and sell when they get expensive. And then there's a smaller group that you can buy and hold for a long time. Mm-hmm. The difficulty usually is just getting in at a good enough price um, because without that, you don't have a margin of safety. So it's not that the price we've talked about, like Boston beer, okay? Take that as an example. Um, the issue with paying too high a price is not so much oh, well, that'll hurt your return a little bit. It's what happens if it turns out that the future of this company is nothing like its past. And so it's a very average business instead of being a very good business. Mm -hmm. Well, the decline can be so big now in the stock because you you paid a price to sales or whatever. That means that this thing could drop by two-thirds as compared to your average stock, which won't decline much at all um, at the price that you paid for that. So there's so much premium built into it on your expect future expectations yeah and so that's important taking the example of over-the-counter markets if that went to the point where it didn't grow at all right that would be devastating to the stock because your returns can be as high as you want you can have a return on equity of 100 percent. it doesn't matter if you're not growing then really you're only worth as much as any other stock that's not growing and that's paying everything out in dividends so you don't get any premium for that so the big thing is like, okay, will it grow at 5% a year forever versus zero? Uh, knowing whether it'll grow at 5 or 15, not so important. You're going to make money either way. But confusing something that'll grow at like 5% a year and something that's basically zero it, it is really bad if you pay any sort of premium like a compounder type uh, price. We did Microsoft before, right? We talked about what it was in 2000, 2010, 2020. I don't remember the exact details, but basically that's probably a stock that went from like 60 times earnings to like 10 times earnings to like 30 times earnings. Mm -hmm. And at each point, people thought those prices were reasonable. Um, And the business never changed as much as that. But at 10 times, it was around 10 times, um, it was seen as having some risk to its durability and not a grower in the future. It was probably seen somewhat similar to like Facebook now. 
Um, Facebook's more expensive than 10 times. Mm -hmm. But it was probably seen in the same sort of way where, okay, it's probably not going to grow as much as others right now. And there's some risk. It might not be a very big risk, but there's some risk that some stuff it's doing might be kind of obsoleted. And that was kind of the concern with Microsoft. And yet it recovered from that to be a premium priced stock again. So that does happen. Most stocks, it does not. Most stocks, if they fall, they were a 60 times PE stock and they completely collapsed. They'll never, the market will never fall in love with them again that way. So probably durability is the most important thing to assess that way. Because durability often gives you the possibility that you'll be able to sell at good prices in the future. What you want, the big thing is if you ever look at a compounder, you, you find something that you think is a compounder, turns out not to be durable at all. So let's say Boston beer turns out, yes, it's durable. We don't know how it'll grow or something. Peloton turns out not durable. It's a much bigger possibility for big losses and something like that because you'll never get a premium type multiple again if the stock doesn't come back, uh, if the business doesn't um, isn't seen as very durable, you know? Mm-hmm. You don't want to own, like, there was a publicly traded stock, Healy's. You yeah. know that for the shoot? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you want to avoid something like that but there are other things that could as easily be i mean it's easy to laugh and be like oh healy's is not ridiculous fad but (laughs) could snapchat have been a fad maybe Mm -hmm. i don't know yeah um at some point it seems reasonable it could be and another point it seems unreasonable you know and that's true with a a lot of these things so i think the durability is probably the most important thing with to figure out with the compounding if if you make the bet that something is a compounder and it's worth paying up for and it turns out you were wrong about durability, that's where you have a really big problem. Yeah. The exact growth rate and stuff is probably less important. Got it. Next question. Cash tag. Jeff has said before that he generally doesn't like share repurchases from illiquid companies as it furthers illiquidity. My question, doesn't the illiquidity discount make repurchases more creative as it's at lower values? Would seem repurchases fix the issue over time? Yes, I uh, I think that that is absolutely true and that they'll make more money that way. I think it's good for the insiders who stay in. And if we owned a lot of st- stock in it and never had to get out of it or anything, then that would be great. And um, my issue for the, I, I don't know exactly what I said that you're responding to that way. I think what I've, um, what I usually say is that the problem with a illiquid company buying back its stock is usually that I can't count on them continuing to do that because what happens is as they do that and it works for a little while uh, in terms of bringing down the share count and I like it, they then decide this isn't helping the stock price. Mm-hmm. And we're getting complaints that this we like your stock, but it's just too illiquid and stuff. And so they stop it. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you're a big owner of it and just keep buying it back, yes. I mean, usually major share repurchases by a highly illiquid company are probably very accretive. Most very illiquid companies, I think, want their stock to be more liquid. Like they're very conscious yeah. of the fact that their stock is illiquid. Yeah. And I think most probably feel, most management feel that if the stock was more liquid, more investors would be involved. Yeah. And, you know, I don't necessarily want it to be more liquid, but if it has to become more liquid, let's figure out a way to do it that doesn't involve issuing more shares. So if that means getting insiders to churn it over or whatever, doing different things that get more short-term oriented shareholders, I guess that's better than issuing shares. You know, that's the worst is issuing shares. Mm -hmm. Why do stocks returns tend to follow the ROIC of the underlying business over time if the intrinsic value of a business is about future cash flow, in parentheses, discounted, and usually people use NOPAT, EBIT, or net income, which are non-cash numbers, as a numerator, of the ROIC formula? Oh, um, that's a very good question. I don't know the answer when we break it down into individual stocks and get into that. A lot of this gets wiped out by the, the um, fact that we're taking a large group and get when we're getting a lot of this data. So like if our entire universe of stocks was movie theater companies and that was all that ever existed and we did these same numbers, we might find that following earnings and stuff it, like the the official ROIC is not important because those are highly cash generative things that can also have unrealistic depreciation and things like that. So I don't, you know, at a certain stage of cable companies growth, would it, this have been totally unrealistic? But um, if all companies were real estate companies, would this be unrealistic? But over lots of companies, it, it is true that in many industries that we look at, the um, 
amount of value they can add in the future in terms of earnings growth is very tied to re- return on um, capital. Mm-hmm. So like Phil Fisher liked companies that grew all the time and didn't, he talked about good margins and stuff, but he didn't obsess about good return on equity. But if you look for companies that can grow at 15% a year for 15 years in a row, they're all highly profitable. Because otherwise, you know, you're borrowing 15% more every year. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't happen. There, there's some in other countries and stuff. Sometimes you can come across that have managed for a while to just borrow more and more money without having good returns. But generally, uh, although like quants and stuff talk about like quality and growth, like not necessarily is the same thing. There's, there's a lot of overlap that I see in longer term growth and quality. And so it's really the Buffett thing where he says retaining a dollar of earnings, does it add more than a dollar to the market value of the company? The way that happens normally is growth at returns on capital that are above the return in the market. So let's say the market's returning 10% a year. If you can uh, grow with an incremental return on equity after tax and everything of 11% or more on like cash terms, um, then growth is valuable. And then you're going to end up with every dollar you put back in the business is going to lead to earnings growth and a higher stock price, often higher multiples. Um, that means that your market value is going to go up a lot over time. So I think that it's really the, the fact that like profitability and growth across most industries are so close that I don't think these measures really matter that much. And I know people get obsessed about which one to use. Mm -hmm. I look at them because I think it's very important in cases where it's disguised. So I like the cases where people say, well, it doesn't earn anything. Well, but it has lots of cash and that's what matters. And we don't short stocks. Lots of cash flow? Cash flow, yeah, free cash flow. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, we've talked about that. There's some companies where I think you can... Um, people can be fooled by stuff mm-hmm. like that. There's, yeah, so like the P's lying to you. Yeah, I mean, if we were running a company and we wanted to get a low multiple, there are things we could do. Now, I don't know why someone would want to do this, but say we did, and we were in charge of all the capital allocation decisions, we've seen enough stocks that we know what things you can do that will make people not reward the business with very high return, um, stock price. So like generating a lot of cash flow from operations, but then putting it all into CapEx that actually is very valuable and not telling people that this CapEx is not um, maintenance CapEx, but is actually investments in different things. When that happens, you see the stock doesn't get a very good um, multiple. Mm -hmm. So for instance, high cash flow from operation stocks with poor free cash flow generation doesn't seem to do as well. Um, Even in cases where the business seems really good, because I think people look at the free cash flow line and they look at things like EBITDA and um, they don't necessarily break out different things with it. Same with like segments of a business that has a lot of different segments, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I think that these average out over time that it works out okay. That's like why quant stuff works. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the same idea applied to very specific kinds of companies would work so well. I think that many of them probably just like ignore, I mean, like the magic formula. Like, okay, we don't do financials. We don't do, uh, what? We don't do utilities and railroads. Mm -hmm. Probably a lot of things say we don't do REITs and stuff like that. There's just whole sections that you say we don't do because actually our model can't work with this stuff. Yeah. I mean, look at how how much value is created from some cable companies and that didn't quite frankly pay taxes for years either or didn't show earnings for years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or like... You know, there some people have like a low price to book strategy or something, but I, some of the things that I've said are cheap. I, I said that, you know, um, cool, Kuna Land Association was cheap and Maryland Pineapple was cheap. Their price to book was astronomical. Mm-hmm. They were carrying the land at values from 100 years ago. So, you know, but like averaged out, that always price to book would work even with land companies because your average company is not holding it at 100 years yeah, ago. Sure. It's just when you pick specific stocks, it can diverge from what you're talking about there. Mm-hmm. A uh, very common question. Rising interest rates have positive and negative effects on banks. How do you yeah. assess a bank's interest rate risk in a rising rate environment? They talk a little bit about it. Um, do they have a lot of longer-term loans and do they have a lot of short-term funding needs? And, and to some extent, how stick air deposits and things like that. But sometimes banks specifically talk about it. Frost, for a long time, has talked about here's how much we expect to come out of the bank as soon as rates start rising. Sometimes they're wrong about it, but they'll say, here's how many billion we would expect to lose. And they'll, um, and so let's say you had loan to deposits of greater than 100%, then obviously you have to replace 
um, deposits. So you either have to pay more on those deposits or you have to get them at market type rates. And if market type rates are higher in the future, then, you know, you have a problem. Um, so, uh, since I mentioned the bank all the time, Frost, Frost is a good example of a bank that short-term interest rates are in a flatter yield curve environment type thing is not such a big deal to them because if, if you were looking at like a pure CNI lending business, um, that's making commercial industrial loans that are, um, not doing mortgages and stuff. And that's not exactly what Frost is. It's not, it is making some loans that are secured by real estate stuff. But if you took that sort of part of the business that you were just providing business loans and you were using customer deposits, then in a sense, we talk about like 210 and, and all those sorts of things, right? Yeah. The spread, spread that would make the most sense would be like three month and five year, right? Mm -hmm. And that could be pretty steep even when um, when people talk about the curve being very flat and stuff. And so, because your loans in that kind of category are pretty short term and uh, pretty, you know, a lot of times pretty floating, to be honest. Um, so fixed long term, those are the ones that are obviously more of an issue. Also, though, having, a, I mean, um, having large securities portfolios in long term um, bonds and things like that, obviously, too. So the duration. So shorter duration of your loans, shorter duration of your um, bonds you know, it, it is better for if you're worried about flat curve that way. It's it's like the the banks will talk about it or you'd be able to talk with them about it. Um, generally, though, I have said and still think it's absolutely true, higher interest rates are generally beneficial for banks, other things equal. Um, now, at some point, interest rates are so high that they slow down in economic activity and all that stuff. But just in general, if you had to have across the board, across the yield curve, high or low rates. High is better because you have non-interest expense and stuff that becomes a real problem. I don't think, like with Europe and stuff, if you want to help out banks a lot, rates at zero are not so, are not as great as people think because you still have to operate the bank and it's not so good. Um, low rates, but a little bit of steepness to the curve might have been more helpful for some banks mm -hmm. you know, in those situations, yeah. Um, next question. Do you guys believe in the hypothesis that years of inflows and in passive investing, you put in quotes, indexing, has affected the overall price level of the index, aka indexing gaining market share and pushing prices higher as it happens? Hmm. What do you think? Yes. Okay. I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. So there you go. I mean, I think Trey, ma Trey makes a good point. He said, I would assume so. They focus on overlooked, non-indexed companies for a reason. They expect lower prices, all else equal. I don't know if lower prices, but I do think there are more opportunities. Well, one would assume it has an effect on... Yeah, one would assume it has an effect on companies in the index versus not in the index. We buy things that are not generally in indexes, not mm -hmm. in ETF, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, uh, like relative to each other. Whether it raises the level of all stocks, I don't know. Here, here's the thing. Until the SPAC stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Share companies generally weren't going public and issuing shares and stuff, right? So I, I would just say for a bunch of the last, you know, few years, um, actually there's several different periods, but you've had uh, the supply of shares of publicly traded companies has not been had not been going up a lot. Now it changed completely with SPACs and things recently, um, and now we've got a lot of public companies and and there were IPOs and everything. But until then you had pretty strong money supply growth with pretty low supply of share growth. Um, I don't know, and we'd have to go back and try to f figure it out by looking at things to do research on that. But I think high money supply growth and low share growth would be a good recipe for a uh, strong stock market. And, um, you know, contracting money supply with expanding, I don't know how this would be possible, but expanding share issuance and stuff would be really bad. Mm -hmm. Um you know, I think there's countries where things have gone pretty well in the country, but they have way too much share issuance. So they're public markets. So like GDP grows, but there's too much new companies coming out and there's too much issuance by existing companies and stuff that the supply of shares grows a lot. So I just think in the long run, the share price, by the, the level of the overall stock market, it's affected by a lot of things. But I think a lot of money in the economy and not a lot of shares to put it into is probably one of the big ones that helps drive higher stock prices and the reverse helps bring them down. Mm -hmm. 
let's see. Next question. Probably a dumb question. Okay. <laughs> it is where it's not. Are we going to tell? <laughs> but if as investors we care about how much cash a company is going to return to us, shouldn't we care about free cash flow growth over sales growth when they differ significantly? In other words, how do you think about growth in the free cash flow plus growth equation? Yeah. <laughs> this is a question we get something like this all the time. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at what do I think your growth is going to be forever? Okay. That's where this gets controversial. I do not believe, though, that you can use things like earnings per share growth, free cash flow growth, and whatever when they're higher than sales growth, because in a matter of just a few years, it's going the, the, the things that you're anticipating in terms of margins and stuff become unrealistic. So um, I think that something like sales growth is more useful. But obviously, sales growth that doesn't contribute to free cash flow is useless. Yes. So what we're talking about is absolutely, you're right. What we're trying to get at is what will free cash flow grow by in the future. What I'm saying is if I had to guess, I think asking what has what have sales grown by in the past might be a better predictor of what free cash flow will grow by in the long-term future than what has free cash flow grown by recently. I think it's too hard to predict what free cash flow will grow by unless it's buy higher sales at similar margins. Um, but you can for a few years. And so we definitely buy things with the anticipation that they will expand margins over three to five years. We just don't expect that they'll expand it for 15 years because no one does that. Yeah, or, you know, for they don't do it for 50 years. Mm -hmm. So adding on that, because somebody asked, he said, you said you calculate return by free cash flow yield plus growth plus multiple expansions. <laughs> How does free cash flow yield generate a return? Um, okay. So... How it generates a return is I've talked about that with companies that do not need to spend to grow. Okay. The actual way that I look at things like return on equity and stuff is I try to figure out how much do I think the company will grow and then how much will it will have to be put back into the business. That's the way I do it. That's not how I talk about it because that's not something that other people do and it's not something they like doing. But I never actually say the return on equity of this business in my head is 50%. I say, if this company grows by 10%, it's only going to have to grow the amount of, of assets that it has by half of that, you know, instead, because they'll be getting such a, a, a big return on that of what other companies would have to. So like, if you have like a 50% return instead of a 10% return, that basically means that you have, you're using 80% less capital, if that makes sense. So if we just look at it this way, it's how much do you grow versus how much do you retain? Um, and usually it's very, you have to retain a lot to grow a little. So if you have a 10% return on equity or something, right, then and you earn a dollar a share, then it's going to, you're going to have to retain that entire dollar to grow 10 cents EPS. So EPS will go from a dollar to a dollar 10. What I would like to find is a company that doesn't have to retain anything. Mm -hmm. So like we're talking about the over-the-counter markets. Then it can go from a dollar to a dollar 10 and I don't have to retain the dollar. That's what I need. So it find. could either pay it out Buy back stock. Or buy back stock. Pay out dividends or acquire something or do. I mean, even if it acquires something and the acquisition is not that great, if it's if it's at all good, you know, mm -hmm. they'll accidentally buy things that are that are good. You know, I mean, Google produces a lot of free cash flow. If it buys all sorts of different tech companies and most of them don't work out, occasionally we'll get more than a zero cent return on our money, even if it manages to destroy eighty percent of the value. That's still better than a company that that has to retain it all just to grow. Mm -hmm. So you want things that don't, um, that don't have to retain earnings to grow, ideally. So that's always how I think about it. I never really do think about return on equity. I think how, because the reason why I don't is I don't think return on equity and things like that are realistic values to look at because I think that the same company run for growth or run to shrink it or something like that will have very different returns on equity. You could take over a company tomorrow and increase its return on equity. Buffett did it with Berkshire by shrinking the company. And that's true for a lot of companies. There are a lot of companies where we could increase returns on equity by taking equity out of the business. It's the easiest way to, mm -hmm. to, to do it, to taking assets out of the business. And in fact, on a cash basis, it's even faster and more productive that way to do it. Um, so the easiest way to like generate cash returns relative to a level of equity and stuff is basically taking equity out of the business and converting things into cash quickly and stuff. And um, that is... What we're looking for is with the growth, um, 
it's what do I think, given a certain level of growth, I generally think that the company's future will be constrained by growth more so than by return on equity. It's easy to do this with like banks, okay? Say you can find a bank that's returning 15 to 20% on equity. It can't grow its loans and deposits by 15 to 20% a year. Um, it's going to grow its equity by 15 to 20% a year if it has a 15 to 20% return on equity, unless it pays something out or buy, buys back stock. So to keep their return on equity up, they have to basically pay out some of it in dividends or buy back their stock. Right, or they could try to grow by 15 to 20% a year. Um, you know, which they can do for a year or for two years or something, but I just don't think they could do for 10 years. So, uh, or you could do if you were very, very small. But, you know, quickly, I think it would become a problem. So the answer is your return equity is higher than your growth, right? So your return equity can fund all of your growth, but can you grow at the rate that's the same as your return equity? Generally, no. For really good businesses, their issue is there's no way to grow as fast as your return equity. Now, for some really lousy businesses, uh, yes, your growth potential is way beyond your return on equity. And that's where you get venture capital money and stuff. And so then I don't know how fast they can grow. They can grow as fast as they can raise money. Um, you know, uh, Uber and Lyft for 10 years or whatever grew really fast with no cash returns at all. So it's just how much you can bring into business. So I can't predict that. But for most companies that we're interested in, um, the, the capacity constraint is not the return on equity. It's the growth. I mean, that's always true the the company can self-fund its growth that's usually the kinds of businesses we're investing in uh, as a result the question is how much will growth be and that's why i use the example of like over-the-counter markets it's very important what the growth rate will be because it's not using capital at companies where the return on capital is take virtual motors say i knew they would always have a 10 percent return on tangible equity then i don't really care how fast they grow or not if they're going to maintain that 10%, okay, pay me all out in dividends. There's some tax implications that buy back the stock. Well, if I think the stock is cheap, that'll work. Or you can grow by 10% a year and retain every dollar, in, uh, every pound in your company. Um, it doesn't make a huge difference because I expect that I can find other things to invest in at about 10% a year. And it's not an exact science, you know, but when you're outside of the range of, let's say, 5 and 15%, I think we could all agree it's hard to find things that return more than 15% a year. It's probably very easy to find lots of stuff that returns 5% a year. So like it's avoiding those companies that have very low returns on equity and finding those that have like the more than 15. But if you find those, then you then want to figure out the growth. And that's the really big thing. A great example of this, if we go to Quick at Best for now, is I've mentioned many times Omnicom. I was, knew you were going to say Omnicom. Okay. Omnicom has had, depending on what happens with inflation, Omnicom could be worth a lot more than if there wasn't inflation. So for 10 years, there's been barely any inflation. Then Omnicom said, by the way, last year our organic growth was like 9 or 10%, and it'll probably be pretty high next year. And the market to that reacted pretty big in one day, which makes no sense because nominal GDP is growing by the rate that they're talking about organic growth, right? If inflation is 7.5%, then if real GDP is going to be 2 it's a 9.5% organic growth rate. Mm -hmm. Advertising grows at about the rate of nominal GDP growth. It, it's not as different from nominal GDP growth as you think over the last 10 years. The uh, Activision, uh, Activision uh, Omnicom disposed of some assets and stuff, you know? But if you look at like organic rates within countries, so like they have a European business, well, that doesn't grow very much at all because Europe was not growing much in nominal terms for those 10 years. But there's not a huge divergence for any length of time between nominal GDP growth and advertising. And so as a result, you have to radically re-rate the company if you thought that inflation would be almost nothing, which it was for much of the last 10 years, or very high, which is for the last year and will be for this year. If you thought it was going to be 7% inflation for the next 10 years, then you should drop whatever you own and buy Omnicom. Because before this announcement, they were trading at what, 11, 10 times earnings, and they're going to grow at nominal GDP. Well, usually when we say grow at nominal GDP, you say, oh, well, that's not very good. <laughs> but right now, nominal GDP is great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So well, why I'm saying that is they, they don't need to reinvest to grow when it's nominal GDP growth. It's like Seize Candies. Uh, Seize Candies was a great investment. Everyone talks about that. It was amazing. If there was deflation, Seize Candies would not be remembered as a great Buffett investment. 
if there was inflation, it wouldn't be way better than, if there wasn't major inflation, it wouldn't have been way better than all his other investments. It would have been very good, but it would have been better than all of them. I, there's no limit. It's it's not like, wow, something huge changed and Omnicom went from growing a couple percent a year to growing 10% a year. The economy went from growing a couple percent a year to 10% a year, you know? Um, and for for like Facebook and Google and those things, they were growing at very high rates when the market was not because they were taking share in advertising. Uh -huh. So then, you know, um, it surprises people when there's a big change in those cases. But that reflects something about the underlying business. A lot of what you saw in ad agencies reflected some stuff about the underlying business. I agree with that. A couple percentage points a year um, that they were not doing as well as some other advertising things. I agree with that. But a huge part of it is the level of nominal GDP. And if if you've now decided that nominal GDP is going to be 5% a year higher than it was before, then you have to re-rate those companies because they're going to be able to grow their profitability at a high rate mm -hmm. because they don't have to then turn around and have CapEx for that amount. See, their assets don't have to grow at the same rate that their, um, that their revenue is growing. So inflation is, you know, if you had to own something, owning something with with uh, in, during inflation, if you had to own something during inflation, owning an ad agency is better than owning an ad agency during deflation. You know, obviously, like deflation is bad for an ad agency, inflation is good. Um, and so, but my point is, what does the return on equity matter? It really doesn't matter. Look, it, it look. I mean, is the nominal GDP going to grow forty percent a year? No, no. Clearly. So, so they're always going to be self funding, mm -hmm. right? So, like that what matters is they're going to be able to self-fund. So if you can self-fund, if you have costless growth, then if you're going to be, then you want the constraints taken off your growth rate. The biggest constraint wasn't the only one, but the biggest one for ad agencies was poor nominal GDP. So nominal GDP goes up, you've removed that constraint. Now they're free to grow at the rate of nominal GDP. Now, even if they were a few percentage points behind it, even if say, they're losing out to other things with advertising, right? And you say, okay, that's a couple of percent. Say before it was nominal GDP's three or 4% and they're losing out 3% a year. So they're at zero. Okay. But now nominal GDP is 10% a year and they're losing 3% a year out, which, you know, I'm, I'm making these numbers up, but they're not bigger than that. Um, now you're growing 7% a year. If you're something growing earnings 7% a year and you trade at 10 times earnings, which they were basically trading at before their, their um, recent earnings, that's a good business. I mean, it's a good stock. Ten times, you know, ten times sure. with a seven percent yeah. growth rate is a very nice stock. And here we're talking about twelve with a ten percent growth rate or something. I mean, if you go to quarterly, maybe they have. Um, they show revenue growth and stuff like that. Uh, well, there's currency conversion stuff that gets into it, but um, yeah. So you see, in the middle of the year, that you had very high increases in in revenue. Yeah. So anyway. Their predictions for next year and stuff are for, you know, higher growth. And how did the stock react? It went up a bunch. What type of multiple would you put on a company like that? Depends on how big inflation is. Uh, if inflation's high enough, an ad agency would have to trade at a gigantic premium over the market. Anything that doesn't require assets, that has a negative working capital cycle, and that is almost guaranteed to be able to price at exactly inflation. The only way it can price at exactly inflation is if ad rates somehow stay below inflation, right? Mm -hmm. But that's hard. You can do that in a recession. It will happen in a recession. But, in, but ad rates really aren't going to fall below um, nominal GDP growth over time unless you're having a recession because companies aren't going to be making less money. Turning, I mean, Buffett talked about his gross profits royalty. That's what he talked about ad agencies being and um, ad-supported media. And that's right. They take a, their gross profits that they made for the year and they put a bunch of it back into advertising. If your gross profits contract a lot, that's called a recession. <laughs> if, sure. if corporate America's gross profits decline a bunch, yeah. we'd be having a recession. So um, so that's tr absolutely true. Cyclically, they are hurt in recessions. But if nominal GDP is growing a lot, then they're much more attractive. But if it's not, they're much less attractive. And I under underestimate two things, which is to a little bit, I underestimated their competitive position of the ad agencies versus um, some other stuff. But that I think was fairly small. But I definitely underestimated um, how low nominal GDP growth would be for how long before COVID. 
And then people get used to that. Mm-hmm. So it becomes that's become the accepted thing is now since it was this level for 10 years, you know, that's what we expect it to be in the future. But I don't know. 10 years before, I mean, 10 years before inflation really took off in the 70s, it, it was pretty muted. Um, you know, it. I mean, we had what, 10 years now that was like one and a half to 2%, more like one and a half percent inflation. Probably averaged about that before you had much higher inflation. So it, it, you know, the stocks get very used to that. But what matters is the future. So what matters in the future here is that constraint on growth. And that's why I, I would look at it that way. Um, for companies that have low returns on equity, though, it honestly does, uh, to me, it does not matter um, how much they're going to grow by. I, I mean, except to the extent it endangers them. And many do get endangered by that if they borrow a lot. But, you know, we talked about um, it, car dealers, right? But we also talked about in, in, um, investors' title insurance, I think we talked about on the podcast. Um, those things, it's good if they grow. Uh, you know, I, I like it. And if margins can expand because of that growth, which sometimes they can, then the business can get better. But in general, it takes a lot of assets to be put back into the business to generate the growth that you're going to have. So trying to predict exactly how much demand for cars or title insurance will grow in the next 10 years, not that big to me. Whether they can take market share, become more efficient, that's what matters. If you were saying our dealerships can be more efficient, I care about that. If you could saying we can build more dealerships, building more dealerships isn't a road to a lot of profits uh, to like a much bigger share price simply because, um, you know, the returns on equity aren't that great. Like the IRRs, if you want to call it that, of the projects aren't that amazing. They're not terrible, but they're similar to what they are elsewhere in the economy. Mm-hmm. Okay, last question. What's more important slash investable? A company's ability to grow in the medium term, and he quoted that as 10 years, or a company's ability to survive over the long term, 30 plus years? So what's more important investable? Um... I would say survive over the long term. So 30 plus years. Well, 30 plus is a very long, long term. Time. 10 years is still long. Think about li- living well, out dep- 10 years. Mm, yeah, but... But I get like the... Well, it depends on what you mean. If I knew what... If I could be sure of growth and survival for 10 plus years, then I'd say that. The problem is the... the people have this thing where they're like... Companies are like people. They like... they age and there's this whole natural thing and whatever and it's nothing like that companies are maybe they're like how things often work for people in the past which is incredibly high infant mortality rate getting to a certain point where you're able to survive then having very low mortality rates through uh middle age period but then you have some companies that live for infinitely long infinitely long periods of time so the truth is that if we don't know if a company, if we know a company can last 10 years, but not 30, that's hard to not know that it will be falling apart a couple of years from now. You know, that's the part that's difficult. We were talking about a book I was reading about BlackBerry. If I feel, if I felt confident BlackBerry would last 10 years from some point, but had no idea if it would last for the really long term, that's hard because it has a realistic probability of having problems in the very short term, I would say. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if you could look out 10 years and be sure of both survival and growth, then you're fine because it will have grown to such a big size that it really has to go to zero at that point. You know, if if you've got a company that's got double digit growth for 10 years while also you're making some money off of whether it's dividends, buybacks, whatever. um, Yeah. Like, you know, if you're investing today in... Uh, I don't know what, you know, um, say Celsius, you know, and it continues to grow at the rate it was recently for 10 years. Then does it really matter if you can't be sure it'll survive for 30 years? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, at today's price or at the price it was at at one point, it might matter because it was so expensive. Mm -hmm. But no, if you could be sure of the 10 years. But I find... um, being sure of the long-term durability to me is uh, the way I think about it usually is more like that means there's a very low probability in any one year that they'll have problems. I, I don't think it's easy to predict for most companies um, that they'll survive definitely for the short term, but not for the very long term. Sometimes you could say that, right? So uh, progressive car insurance, that's what they do. 
what if we all have self-driving cars? What if all self-driving cars are safe? What if they're not required to have um, insurance on them for, for the driver? You know, maybe a company is provided or something on it. Um, then doesn't that obsolete their business model? And if they keep buying back stock and their things forever, then doesn't that mean they won't be around in 30 years? It seems reasonable that Progressive might not be around in 30 years and Geico. Um, and Progressive doesn't have a large investment portfolio and doesn't do other kinds of insurance kind of stuff. So, you know, maybe, but but it'll be around in 10. We know it'll be around mm -hmm. in 10. So if I could be sure Progressive can grow really strong for 10 years, is it a problem that it might, what it's doing completely not exist in 30? Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, it's a good way of looking at it, though. Yeah. Where, like, if you're not exactly sure about it, even being there in 10 years, that's a very high probability. Yeah, except you have to remember for most companies, um, they survive for companies, they tend to survive as companies differently than like the product and stuff. So Progressive is very focused on one thing that way. But there's lots of companies where what they're doing today won't be around in 10 years. But what they're doing today will make them a lot of profits over the next 10 years, which they'll invest in other stuff and they'll be around in 30 years sure. because of that. And it's Berkshire, right? Yeah, it's Berkshire. And, um, you know, so... Um, and we've talked about banking things before and people are like, will it go away? A bunch of the things that banks do, uh, you know, did a hundred years ago, 50 years ago, have kind of gone away and been replaced by securities markets and stuff in those things and other ways of doing it. Um, but they still have other uses for it. So the idea of people putting money with a bank and that money being put out in some way, um, yeah, that that's like continued, but the exact things that they've done actually has changed quite a bit. The, the same exact loans and stuff usually have changed in a lot of cases not not for all but there's a bunch that did change cool well we will finish this thread uh next week we'll continue on with this q a i want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us this is the first time you're listening with us hit the subscribe button uh, wherever you're listening watching viewing um uh, go to my Twitter at Focus Compound to uh, you could add to this thread and we will pull it up next week if you have a question. And of course, if you're interested in learning more about our money management services, uh, reach out to me, Andrew at FocusCompound.com. We have a hedge fund arm and a managed accounts arm. Uh, you could get all of those details at the invest with us tab on our website, FocusCompounding.com. Thank you so much for all the support and we will see you in the next podcast.